Matthew 17, 1 through 20. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire and into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring, up, bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive, drive it out? And he replied, because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. This is the word of the Lord. Excellent. Hey, let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing your son Jesus, yourself through him. And then thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to breathe life, to raise Jesus from the dead, and then to give us the scriptures so that we might know you in a unique way. We turn our hearts toward the scriptures, but ultimately, it's so that our hearts will be turned toward you, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Awesome, well, uh, my name's Evan Wickham. My wife Sandy and I have the joy of leading this church forward. It's a new year, uh, all kinds of stuff we have planned. But for now, we're getting into the Gospel of Matthew. So last year, we went through Matthew 1 through 16, and right now we're picking up in chapter 17 where we left off, and this is a hinge, a huge like fulcrum moment that Matthew's gospel swings on right here. Uh, one chapter ago, Jesus just asked his disciples the famous question, who do you say that I am? Uh, Jake Fisher, the guy who did announcements a couple minutes ago, he texted me a picture of Life magazine. Currently, the current issue on display has a big picture of a painting of Jesus and who do you say that I am? Yet again, they're just, the, the world is enamored with this question and this man. Uh, and so uh, one chapter ago, Jesus posed that question to his disciples. Peter answers brilliantly, you're the Messiah, which is like the king. Like you're the one who's bringing the kingdom. You're the one who's freeing the oppressed, us 
from under the, bro- under the boot of Roman oppression. Like, you're that guy. Jesus. And Jesus is like, bingo. And then Jesus says how his kingdom will come, will come through suffering. And Peter's like, no. And so, and so Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. So he said one good thing and then one really bad thing. And so, so the disciples are confused at this point. And then so Jesus is trying to teach us something. He's trying to teach those of us who follow him. Raise your hand if you're a Jesus follower. Awesome. So he's trying to teach you that this thing that we're following, this kingdom he's bringing, and this church he's building, Jesus is going to build it wherever his disciples are faithful to speak of Jesus as a crucified king and then follow him in obedience, whatever it costs to us. So Jesus is going to build his thing through that, through us speaking that he's the crucified king and lord of the world and then following his teaching obediently no matter what it costs us. Jesus is going to do the rest. So a way of saying this, there's no church growth strategy that even comes close to the effectiveness of a community that, one, preaches the crucified Messiah, two, walks in obedience to the Father, and three, prays fervently in the Spirit. There's no like church growth model or magazine or latest book or website or conference you can go to that is even close to as effective as this for what true kingdom growth looks like in the church. And that's it, that's the heart of what Matthew is telling us here. This is the kind of community he's calling us, Park Hill, and every church to become, okay? And and as we do these things, we gather around word, table, songs of praise, and one another, and we preach the gospel to ourselves and our neighbor, the goodness of Jesus. As we do that, Jesus is faithful to form us more after his image. This is it. As we, and, and then we scatter all over the city in our communities, loving our neighbors like Jesus did. This is it. And so it's that third part right here, praying fervently in the Spirit. It's that third part that this text is going to land us at. I want to drill down deep into that. So prayer. We hit it hard last week. We're going to hit prayer hard again this week uh, because that's what Matthew has us do. He, he, that's what Matthew is having us do. He's, Jesus sees prayer as the thing that catalyzes kingdom power. That's it. Can't fake it. So I'm personally getting more and more Pentecostal in my theology these days. Like I, I am so convinced that prayer is the thing that catalyzes kingdom power on earth. Uh, I'm, uh, yeah, prayer is the key that unlocks so many doors in our lives and in our own hearts. Uh, doors we didn't even know were closed. Like God gives us the vision to see We didn't even know there were obstacles when we pray. And so as we begin in 2019 as a church community, God is calling Park Hill into a deeper life of prayer, okay? I'm totally convinced of this. Because we, when I say we, I mean the the Western church collective, we've tried everything else, okay? We've tried everything else. So the 50s and 60s churches with over 2,000 people uh, were rare before the 50s and 60s. Um, after the 60s, suddenly it's common to find a church with like multiple service times. Like that's really new, you guys. Uh, and, then, and then you get to the 90s and you see churches with like multiple locations even, like campuses and things. And, and then you get to the 2000s and, and the mega thing becomes like this reverse mega house church multiplying thing with missional communities or whatever you wanna call it. And it's all great. Listen, we need all of that. It takes all kinds of churches to reach a city. But listen, more people than ever are skipping typical church models altogether and ticking the box spiritual but not religious. Uh, Sociologists are calling this the rise of the religious nuns, N-O-N-E, not 
Catholic nun. But like, the rise of the nuns. Like, what's your religion? Atheist, Christian, Buddhist, blah, blah, or none. Uh, check none, more than ever. That's the age we live in. So allow me to please state the obvious. The culture you live in, you go to OB or your workplace downtown or wherever you work in the suburbs, you, people are completely uninterested in what church model you have. Like, like the last question on the average San Diegan's mind is whether Park Hill Church has one gathering or multiple gatherings, or if we have a bookstore, or if the coffee's good, or if we're interdenominational or non-denominational or whatever. People in our culture could not care less about those questions. Uh, they simply, we, all of us, our culture simply wants to know, what do I do about these deep, unresolved longings in my heart? What do I do? How can I find a life that's more than a repeat rat race? Wash and rinse and do it again every year. How will this year be different than last? Please help me out. Like, that's all. That's like the deepest concern we have. How do I find a life full of meaning and purpose, truly? Like, convince me where the purpose is, please. That's the question. And friends, we follow Jesus because we believe, we actually believe that he is the answer to the deepest longings of the human heart. He's the one who holds true power. Power to actually heal the brokenness that's deep within us. Not just power to give us the things we think we need, but to go above and beyond and actually go underneath and heal and mend and restore and unify division and be that healer that we truly need. And we believe the church, we as a church, are God's plan A community of power to do what Jesus did, to heal and to unify and to embrace the lost and to run and save the one on the fringe into our culture of radical forgiveness, okay? So we take on this kind of power. We become powerful like Jesus in that way, not when we figure out the right like, time to gather on Sunday, like the nine or the 11 or whatever. Like, we, all of those things are fringe, uh, but we become Jesus' community of power when we put prayer at the center of what we do as the people of God. So that's, that's like the one drum I'm hitting, both last week and this week. We become the kind of Jesus-shaped people that we're called to become when we put prayer at the center of what we do. It's the kind of community that will change a city through glorifying God. So this is what Matthew does in this text. He does three things, like it's divided up into three like literary sections. So if you can put this next slide up, you have the source of true power. Do you have the slide? So the source of true power, he talks about this in the mountaintop scene, and then the form of true power. What, is, what does power look like? Uh, he talks about this as they're coming down the mountain. Matthew's doing this intentionally with the literature. I love it. And then at the bottom of the mountain, in the trenches, he's like, here's how to get the power. Here's how to get it. So here's where it comes from, what it looks like, and how to get it. And you can see the source of true power is, you're going to see it's God revealed in Jesus alone. That is the source of true power, the kind of power people are truly longing for. And then what it looks like is love that is willing to suffer, as opposed to modern definitions of love. And then finally, how do you get it? Prayer in the trenches. That's it. That's how we access, that's how we become a people that accesses the power of God, prayer in the trenches. So again, reading verses one through nine with a couple comments, 
Start with verse one. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shined like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. (laughs) I love that. So you're on a mountain. Jesus shows you his heavenly radiant glory. And, and, and there's like two ancient saints that show up mysteriously on this mountain. When you're face to face with the glory of God, probably not the best thing to say is like, it's good that I am here, you know? Like, like God is displaying his awesomeness and you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm here too, like it's great. Um, that, but Peter kind of goes there, he's like, it's good for us to be here and he says, if you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah And then the father cuts him off. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son who I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, don't be afraid. And they looked up, I love this. They looked up and they saw no one but Jesus. Okay, what's going on here? It's a powerful passage, very unique. No other stories are like this really in the Gospels. The one that comes closest is the baptism where the clouds kind of part, the dove descends, and the father says, this is my son. But in that moment, Jesus doesn't shine like he does here. He's like shining or whatever. It's amazing what's happening here. So first thing I want to point out, this event shows up in a couple other Gospel accounts. Luke and Mark talk about it, and Luke tells us why they went up on the mountain. You ready for it? I love it. Luke lets the cat out of the bag. Luke says specifically, they went up on the mountain to pray. That was the reason. Their intention was to pray, to get in touch with God. And then this whole scene unfolds. I love that. And like I said last week, the disciples were aware of something very specific. Jesus could do wonderful things, things that we want to do, to to, to rescue the oppressed and to heal the broken and to forgive the sinner and to teach really well and everything. But they understood something beneath all of that, that for Jesus, the fuel of all of that incredible activity that you and I want to see more of, the fuel for Jesus was prayer. Always was. So like, Lord, teach us to pray. Yeah, all that other stuff we'll learn, but Lord, I realize the foundation is prayer. So we want to go up on the mountain with you. That was their heart. And that should be our heart too. Lord, I realize that that's the source of where you draw from, Jesus. So I want to draw from it too. And then the second thing I wanna point out, and this is, to me, this is really important, and I think it's often missed. Uh, Peter gets caught up in the moment, even Peter misses it, okay? So he gets caught up in the moment, you can't really blame him. No one sees their Messiah glowing on a mountain every day. Uh, So he gets caught up in the moment, and he suggests building three, like basically little temples, three little houses, for Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and this was a very Jewish thing to do. So Peter sees Moses and Elijah standing there. Moses and Elijah, they represent the law and the prophets, which is the Hebrew scriptures, which is what? It's our Old Testament. So for them, Moses and Elijah, that was a personified representation of the Bible. The Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And Peter's like, whoa, these are all the words of God happening here, it's amazing. So Peter suggests building a temple for all of these things he's seeing. And then a voice from heaven interrupts Peter and says, this is my son. Listen to him. The implication is profound. Like, 
So I want you to hear this. I heard this put, and it's beautiful, and I think it says it well. Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is what God has to say. So Peter has before him the embodiment of the law and the prophets in Moses and Elijah, and then he sees Jesus. And he already thinks Jesus is the Christ. He said so. He has an idea of that. So he sees Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, and he's like, all three. I'm going to put them all three on the same level right now. We're all going to build houses for all of them. And God's like, don't you understand that Jesus was always the point of the law and the prophets? You want perfect theology? Perfect theology is a Jewish carpenter. Perfect theology is Jesus in person. God speaks, the Father speaks from heaven, and what he speaks is that Jesus is what I've always wanted to say. Jesus is the final and full, capital W, word of God. And the written, lowercase w, word of God, points to the uppercase w, Jesus. So important. This is what we confess as Christians. The voice from heaven doesn't say, yeah, Peter, these are my beloved servants, and I'm pleased with all of them, hear them. Uh, no, the voice interrupts Peter and says, this is my beloved son. I'm deeply pleased with him. Listen to him. And there's so much here, so much to say. You could spend a whole year talking about how the Bible works and how every page is meant to be a signpost to Jesus, the fulfillment of it. Uh, but Frederick uh, Bruner says this, Jesus is the key to the Bible's interpretation. He's the key to tying together its diverse threads and to the solution or suspension of its seeming contradictions. We don't wanna just pretend that there's no apparent contradiction in the scriptures. People have spent many, many years of their lives pointing out the apparent contradictions, and I say apparent. But if you read the biblical authors for what they're actually intending to do, you realize, oh, they're doing something that is greater than we could ever hope any other book to do. And that's to point to theology in person, to point to the capital W word in flesh and blood that moved into our neighborhood to save. The whole scripture is a signpost that points to Jesus, okay? So when the church obeys the Father's voice, listen to Jesus, we see the Spirit-inspired Old Testament clearly for what it is. We see the Old Testament clearly. The Old Testament, is a library of ancient books that's both truthful and messy, uniquely inspired by God, written to an ancient community of nomadic, Semitic people. And it, uh, the Old Testament's purpose was to infallibly point us to the living word, Jesus. That's the purpose of the Old Testament. So the word of God is finally, refold in, ref, finally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now let me be clear. Here at Park Hill Church, we believe the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, is with, is, it is truthful in all it affirms. That's the language of the Lausanne Covenant. It's, it's a widely read and widely adhered to statement that we're actually gonna link to from our website. The entire scriptures, Old Testament and New, are entirely and fully trustworthy and truthful in all they affirm, okay? So the scriptures, that's, that's what we see them as. So that, but then the question immediately becomes, what do the scriptures affirm? Like, what do they actually teach? And that's like really a great question. 
Like, what did the Old Testament, te- like, does it teach you're supposed to be a, you can be a polygamist and still be blessed by God? Like, like is that what it teaches? Like, there's so many questions that that raises. And that, that's why we could, you could spend like a year just unpacking this. So it's a great question. If the scriptures are truthful in all they affirm, what do they affirm is the obvious next question. So, so let me ask you, how do you go about finding out what the Bible says about X? Just think maybe in your mind, like how do you, when you're like, what does the Bible actually teach about polygamy or whatever you name it, slavery? What does the Bible actually teach? How do you, how do you then go find the answer to that question? That's an important one. It's finding out, let me say, finding out what the scriptures actually teach is so important, and honestly, it's so rarely done. Because so many people just like go to blog sites or celebrity authors to see what's in the Bible. Which is not a good idea. It's, uh, here's, here's how one of my mentors, Gary Bashirs, said it in an email to me yesterday. He, he said this, channeling J.I. Packer. He says, my attitude, my attitude is to receive what the Bible is found upon inspection actually to teach us as truth from God. I think that is a wonderful way of approaching the scriptures. It's honest, it's authentic, and it doesn't glaze over the apparent difficulties of what it means to actually say an ancient library of Semitic documents has authority today. It's a very, very, very nuanced conversation. Now, it's important. This is important. The 66 books of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, this is important. They're not flatly authoritative for the church across the board in the same way. They are all authoritative, so don't hear what I'm not saying. They are all authoritative in various ways, but they're not all authoritative in the same way. And again, remember, the entire Bible is authoritative and truthful. Remember, we stand with the historic Christian belief that the scriptures are truthful in all they affirm. So the Old Testament and New Testament, they're all authoritative, but they're not in the same way. In other words, the book of Joshua is not authoritative for the church in the same way the Gospel of John is. It's, and, and also, like the book of Esther, you think of that story of God's faithful deliverance of his people, it's not on par with Ephesians for Christian doctrine, per se. I, sometimes that should be obvious for us, I think. This is important. The whole Bible is trustworthy and authoritative, but not every book of the Bible carries Jesus' authority to us in the same way. And I like how Bruner says it. It's helpful. Scripture is peaked like Colorado, not flat like Kansas. So who says where the peaks are? Jesus on the mountaintop does. We take Jesus' glasses and we put them on our eyes. The father on the mountain says, you see Moses, you see Elijah, you see Jesus. Yeah, no, don't talk about, hear him, hear my son. This is my son who I love. Moses and Elijah are great. They have an incredibly authoritative and pointed purpose in the story of redemption, which was always to point to Jesus. And now Jesus says, take on my yoke, take on my way of knowing the world, take on my way of reading the scriptures. That's what it means to follow me, Jesus says. Jesus is the ultimate peak in the landscape of scripture. That's why the scriptures are peaked like Colorado with Jesus at the top of the highest pinnacle, not flat like Kansas, okay? And I love this from my friend Andrew Wilson from his book Unbreakable, we sell it back at the table. Andrew says this, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. 
I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him, and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible's trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. <laughs> Boom, <laughs> like that's so good. Andrew's so good, I love that so much. Uh, simply put, Jesus is the living word of God to which the written word of God faithfully points. And then Jesus points back to the written word and says, this whole thing is Jesus approved because it points to me. So the circularity is real, and we should be fine with that. Circularity is real there. Um, Jesus on the mountain, surrounded by Moses, Elijah, representing the Old Testament, and surrounded by Peter, James, and John, the authors of the New Testament. He's like, they're all around me now, like they should be. They're all pointing to me now. I'm the center of what's happening here. That's what Jesus is saying. He's the source of true power in the church. We go to the scriptures to find the source of true power, which has always been Jesus. So every page points to that source of power. He's a fulfillment of our deep longings. And later in his old age, Peter would write about this event. Imagine Peter, decades older, thinking back on this crazy moment in his life. He writes this in a letter. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son who I love. With him I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So the Father shouts over Jesus, let him shout over us right now. Hear the Father. Jesus, my son, is the source of true power in the world, and you, church, are the community of power filled with the spirit of Jesus, meant to do what Jesus did, continue the work of Jesus into the world. And you take my power out into the world in that way by becoming like Jesus, by being with Jesus and doing what he did. We do this in faithful community together. So that's section one on top of the mountain. And then they leave the mountain, they start descending, and <laughs> Jesus shows them what form this power takes. And it's upside down, it's inside out, it's not what we'd expect. So the second section is all about what this power looks like. And uh, this is an intentional move on Matthew's part. He's gonna say it looks like as we descend into the trenches of life, practically, this power is gonna look like sacrificial love a kind of love that is not out for its own interests. That's what the power of heaven on earth looks like. And read, read from verse nine with me. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Verse 11, Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah's already come, and they didn't recognize him but have done to him everything they wished. But they decapitated him. We already went through that part. They, they cut off his head for standing up for the ethics of Jesus. In the same way, verse 12, the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. So what Jesus is saying here is when heaven crashes into earth, when God comes, God looks like a kind of love that suffers. 
When God, uh, when light explodes into our selfish, narcissistic, power-hungry darkness, it looks like releasing power. The power of heaven actually looks like releasing power. It looks like letting go of personal interest for the benefit of the weaker person. Every time. That's what Jesus is saying. It's so counterintuitive. It goes against the grain of, of our capitalistic, individualistic society. And so on the mountain, Matthew shows us the source of power, and now he shows us this, this form, this mind-bending form of power. It's cross-shaped love. The form of true power is cross-shaped love. According to Paul, in his letters to the Galatians, one of the fruits of the Spirit's power is long-suffering. So if, if you can know that if you are filled with the power of God, if you are living in the way of Jesus, the fruit that just falls off of your branches is the willingness to suffer for a long time. <laughs> to suffer long. We sub in the word, English word patience, but it's this idea that I will pass through this valley for a long time if it means your benefit, oh beloved one. That's a fruit that God's power is at work in your life. How is that working for you right now? How is that looking for you? To me, patience is the hardest one on the list of the fruits of the Spirit by like a million miles. Like patience, like for real. I get so impatient with those closest to me. I mean, it should be redundant to us, this idea of sacrificial love. That should be, that should be redundant. But because we have such a messed up definition of love in our head from our culture, we have to put the word sacrificial in front of it so we know we're not talking about a, like a rom-com or something. Because I love you today. If I say I love you, often that's mostly taken to mean I want you for the things I find desirable about you. I love you means I have these feelings that want to connect, I want to connect with you. I want to, I desire to, you are attractive to me. So I love you means it's something about me. It's not, it's not about the other as much. It's about how I resonate with you. That's our culture. That's our cultural's main working definition of love. So, so we have to say, no, no, God loves sacrificially. <laughs> we have to put sacrificial in front of it. But, but, but to the biblical authors, that would be, painfully redundant because the only kind of love in the Bible is loving kindness. Uh, chesed in the Hebrew, agape in the Greek. There were many words for it, but none of them were this, I mean, eros love was kind of this affectionate, compelling thing for the other, but the biblical idea of God's directed and, and postured love towards people is always for the benefit of the weaker person at whatever expense to myself. Always. So we need a radical like renovation, a love renovation in our hearts if we're gonna be the kind of person, be the kind of church that takes the power of Jesus and works it out in an in in intelligible, gospel-centered kind of way. I love you is not usually enough. I mean, you, you know this in your romantic relationships. You can say I love you on the way out the door to work. It's like I love you, love you. It's more like good, goodbye. It carries the meaning of a greeting. You know, I love you so much. That's better. That's, and it's kind of like it, it can conjure up a tiny butterfly after five years of marriage or whatever. Um, you know, five, and you're like, I love you so much. 
But then you have to qualify it. You have to like define it. Like, I love you. Because it's always like, well, how do you love me? Why do you love me? And like, oh yeah, I have to clarify. But, but biblically, love is, wow, it's already clarified. It is an active, self-sacrificial move that lifts up the worthless person at your own expense. That's just it. I mean, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, starts out by God saying, I have loved you, Israel. And then Israel comes right back and says, the leaders go, how have you loved us? And then, and then he says, I have loved Jacob, but Esau has not received all of the blessings of the land and all of the promises of the covenant fulfilled and all of my faithfulness to see your children grow and be enriched. So God's saying, I have loved you. The proof's in the pudding. Look where you live. Look at how much I've given. Look at how much I've done to deliver. I have loved you. I have actively lifted up a tribe of slaves in Egypt to a place of inheritance in Israel. I have loved you. So when God says, I love you, it's not that he feels feels for you, even though he does. It's that the proof is in the pudding. His actions align with his compassion. He does justice and mercy and has compassion for us. So that's the, that's the form of this power that's so countercultural. It looks like a love that's not I love you. It's not love actually or whatever. It, it's, it's, it's sacrifice actually is what it is. You're putting yourself on the line. My goodness, that could, that could be a year. That could just be a year of what that looks like. Um, and then he gets to how God's people access this power. How do we actually get there? We see it in Jesus, and it looks like sacrificial love, but how do you get there? So verse 14, when they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire and into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. And then Jesus talks harshly. Jesus talks harshly. I can't help but think it's coded with compassion and grace and loving kindness and the same delivering love of Yahweh for Israel. He says, you unbelieving, perverse generation, you got it twisted, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? Remember he said the same thing to Philip and John. He's like, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You don't need to wonder what God is like anymore. You're like, is God, is God for us? Is he again? What's God like? Like, no, how long do I have to be with you before you get it? Like, I'm the full revelation. Whatever I do is God. He says, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon. It came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. And then here's the punchline. The disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we do it? We couldn't drive out the demon. If you remember previous chapters, they've driven out demons before. Why can't they do it this time? And Jesus' answer, because you have so little faith. And that word little faith is one word. It's like a combo word in Greek. It's because you have this thing called little faith. It's one word. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it'll move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Dang, that sounds rad. Like, I want that. I want not the little faith. I want the one that moves mountains. So you move from the mountaintop to coming down the mountain. Now we're in the trenches. Rubber meets the road. Rubber meets the road. Boots on the ground. How does it actually look? 
So the disciples are at the bottom of this mountain. Why couldn't we drive out the demon? And Jesus says, little faith. And this is where looking at other gospel accounts is helpful. I'm not usually a fan of like filling holes in one gospel story with data from another gospel because I think each author has something specific they're trying to say. But this is such a unique event in Jesus' life. We can pretty much count on like a multi-angled view being pretty profound. And so, so, so why couldn't the disciples cast out the demon? Matthew says it this way and Mark says it this way. Matthew is because you have little faith. And Mark says, this kind can only come out by prayer. So Matthew's reason that they couldn't do it was this little faith stuff they had. And Mark's reason was this prayer stuff they didn't have. So which is it? Like, how do, how do we get more power? Uh, is it by having bigger faith or by prayer? And Jesus is like, yep. <laughs> They're the same. They're mutually binding, mutually binding. You can't take one side of the coin off from the other. And Bruner says it this way. Prayer is simply, I love this. Oh, next slide. He says, prayer is simply faith breathing. For Jesus, there's not much difference between faith and prayer. Jesus says if you have just, just faith the size of a mustard seed, which is different than little faith. Little faith is prayerlessness, prayerlessness. But a little mustard seed faith is like, Lord, I'm just, all I got is this prayer. All I got is this. I'm, I'm, it's you and me right now. It's you and me in my community right now. God, come. What if mustard seed faith is just praying faith? Faith the size of a little seed is just a faith that prays, a faith that breathes. What if you have this thing called a relationship with God? We talk about that a lot in church. Do you have a relationship with God? And all of us kind of fill that with meaning. Like, is he, what kind of relationship do you have with a creator? Like, is he like my teacher and I'm like a student? Is that the relationship? Or is he like a dad and I'm a son? Because we, we can feed meaning into that that may or may not be accurate. And, and whatever it is, we see from the entire story of Abraham that Abraham's relationship with God, which is really the first real relationship with God we see in the scriptures that's detailed. Abraham's relationship with God was a relationship full of trust. It was built on trust. So let's say you have this relationship. What if this relationship with God, a trusting, healthy, vibrant, power-filled relationship with God, what if the inside of it is faith and the outside of it is prayer? And it's all one thing. I mean, Park Hill, you guys, I believe today, first Sunday of the year, I am here to call us out of prayerlessness and into a new rhythm of prayer unlike we've ever been in personally and as a community, into the kind of faith that brings hope and healing where people most want it. The only way we'll become the kind of community that brings Jesus' hope and healing is when we become the kind of community that prays like Jesus. A little faith like a mustard seed. I mean, what if that's just a faith that prays, a faith that can breathe? Breathe, like breathe. You know what's interesting? I find this incredibly beautiful. Uh, God's name is four Hebrew letters, often pronounced Yahweh. 
And that, that hey, it's a hey in the Hebrew. It has a breath behind it. It's very intentionally spoken with a breath, Yahweh. And when Yahweh chose Abraham, Abraham's name wasn't Abraham, and his wife Sarah's name wasn't Sarah. They were Abram and Sarai. So when Yahweh said, I want you, I want to love you, I want to lift up you to the level of beloved, I wanna prove that I love you with sacrifice. When God did that, he changed their name from Abram to Abraham. He breathed faith into his name. And Sarah got the same thing. She got the hey. She got the ha. It went from Sarai to Sarah with a hey. Those two letters that make up the majority of Yahweh's name, 50% of Yahweh's name, two hey's out of four letters. This breathing, the ruach, the breath of God, he breathed it into Abram and Sarai and made them Abraham receiving his own breath. And then Jesus in John 20, he said, now that I've risen and now that I'm sending you, now that you know your love, now that you've seen my cross, I breathe, I breathe on you. Receive the Holy Spirit, I give you a new name. Do you believe this? Receive this relationship from me. Receive my breath and begin breathing back. Pray, connect with me. Just a little mustard seed. The difference between little faith and a mustard seed, one can't do a single thing for the kingdom. The other one can move a mountain. And the difference, it's not size. It's not how big your prayer is. It's that you do pray. It's that you recognize your beloved status as a child of God. And you come to your father going, thank you for telling me who I am. I believe who you say I am. I come to you based on what you've said. Your daughter, your son. Prayer is this faith that breathes. So how does the church become the power of God in the world? We become a people who pray. We realize our name has God's breath in it now. And we can breathe it back. And hear from him. Listen. Behold my beloved son. Listen to him. We can listen. And then we can talk to him. And we can listen again and talk. You guys, let's step into that relationship with God. As a community on Sundays and personally. So why were the disciples unable and unpowered? Why are we unpowered? Why do we go to work going like, I just don't feel like I'm enough. I don't feel like I'm doing, and you, you end your day going, why couldn't I do this day? <laughs> I couldn't do the day, I couldn't do anything. I failed at all the, I believe it's because they did not have the little mustard seed faith of believing what God says about them that moved them to connect with the God that they know loves them. In the face of a scary situation, it was a scary day. Like a, you don't often come, out, come across a, a feral demon child, but they did. And what did they do? They lost their confidence that they had the authority to drive the demon out. They forgot about the goodness of God. You guys, the goodness of God is the basis for anything we do. The goodness of God is the basis for prayer. And this is the nature of prayer. It's rooted in God's nature. So in the scary day-to-day -day moments, when push comes to shove, we, when we forget who God is and what he says about us and, and therefore forget to pray, we lose sight of the simplicity of what God says about us. We lose sight of prayer. You guys, prayerlessness is powerlessness. There's no simpler way to say it. We become prayerless when we trust our talents and our routines and our bank accounts and our schedules and resources more than we trust the living God. 
we become prayerless also, there are times when God is silent. There are times you're like, I can't even, I pray and I can't even feel it. I don't feel it. I don't feel like I'm close. I used to. Be real about that. This is the place to be real about that. There are times when God is silent. You guys, there's whole swaths of, of centuries in biblical history where God doesn't act, seemingly. There's no, there's no miraculous stuff. Like between Malachi and Matthew, between the Old Testament and the New, Test New Testament, they call it the intertestamental period where no one heard a word from God. There are times when God seems silent, and there's times when he seems silent in my personal life. I'm just like, why am I not hearing anything? I'm supposed to lead this freaking church. Like, why don't I, I don't know what I'm doing, anything. I'm just gonna go and just worship and just unpack the scriptures and do it little Jesus, what Jesus did, just a little bit. Because um, I don't know. And, and what the mustard seed faith concept means is that we realize that God is so good that even in the silence, we realize every time God was silent in the scriptures, you look back and you're forced to realize like, oh, oh, he was actually totally working in the mundane, in the ordinary, in the little faithful choices. Like mustard seed faith opens its eyes to that reality that God works beauty in the ordinary. My wife's reading this book called A Liturgy of Ordinary. And it's amazing by uh, Tish Harrison something. She has like three names. It's so good. Liturgy of Ordinary. Oh my gosh, just, talk, just talking about waking up. Just her, her ability to describe what it looks like to pray when you're barely awake and you don't even know it's prayer. But to wake up, you guys know that feeling when you wake up out of your bed and you're, you're barely cognizant. You're kind of unconscious and you're like, oh, this feels bad. And... and it, she, she's like, that's when you realize you are dust, <laughs> and you'll return to dust. You're not an employee in that moment. You're not an employer. Your eyes are just waking up. You're starting to stretch. You realize what position your body's in and where it hurts, and you're like, I'm not, right now I'm not an active husband because she's sleeping. I'm not doing any husbandly chores or whatever that looks like. My, parent, my kids aren't pooping their pants and crying for a diaper to be wiped. I'm not making coffee, I'm not reading the paper, I'm not on Twitter, I'm just dust right now, and it's sacred. And to dust I'll return, I'm just human. That's all I am. The only thing I got going right now is that I'm being a human, somewhat mediocre human right now. And God is there. He's there and he hears that acknowledgement and when you, when you in that moment say, Hello, God. Thank you for being here in my bed, in my dustness. That's the faith that moves mountains. That's the faith that changes cultures. So when God is silent or when you're waking up and when it's just the creaky, cracky moments of the morning, just know that God is incredibly active in those moments, loving you, working for your benefit, working to lift you up and to redeem you, even in the silence. I believe that's a word for many today. The silence is truly golden for the children of God. Live into the silence. The church breathes in those moments Connecting with God, inhaling and exhaling his power. Even Jesus knew this. Final verse. 
Even Jesus knew this. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who would obey him. Would you obey him? I'm talking specifically to all of you. Would you obey him? Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter. Jesus is calling us into a, a relationship of trust with his Father. And we have the opportunity to say yes to trusting God, to say yes to trusting a Father who's pursuing you with goodness and love. So like I said, if you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus, welcome, well done, you're brave. We applaud your bravery for coming to a church. It's amazing. Okay, um, if you have been following Jesus forever, would you obey him? Jesus is your source of salvation. Would you obey him? He's calling us into a deeper rhythm of prayer. And last week we talked about what that looks like. Two things real quick. It looks like pre-gathering prayer before Sunday morning. And it looks like praying together in our gatherings. We're gonna keep doing that. And then we have new rhythms. Morning prayer and seven. Morning prayer, every Wednesday morning, all of you are invited the whole church. We meet at the building right across this little hallway. It's the same building, it's just uh, the little bridal suite where the kids meet. We pray every Wednesday morning this year from 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. where we just breathe together with God. And we ask him to do a work in this city. We ask him to move. This is the foundation that all of our other activities built on. And then seven, mark your calendars. It's gonna be awesome. March 31st, Sunday through April 6th. We're spending a week of praying, praying and fasting with multiple churches all over the city that don't typically, we, we don't typically do stuff together. We're, San Diego it has so many churches in it, we don't often see each other. We're like ships passing in the night, but we're all stopping what we're doing. Not every church in the county, but many are gonna stop, come together, and meet at a different location every night of that week and fast and pray that God would just bring his kingdom to San Diego. And then finally, one thing I didn't talk about last week that I want to encourage you personally in, and I'm, I'm involved, I'm receiving this too right now, personal rhythm. Take on a personal prayer rhythm. I don't know if you pray daily, but let's do it. Like, let's pray daily. Become a person who breathes with God. This is just a very practical tool that we're going to put on the Facebook and Twitter pages, a very practical tool. It's how to pray for an hour. Like, I don't know if you've prayed for an hour alone. It's, it can be so hard. Like, I don't know, if you're anything like me, it's like you pray for peace in the Middle East and for my kids' safety and even for the president or whatever, and then like two, two minutes later, you're done. Like, it's over. And you just run out of steam, and you're like, I'm so done. Uh, well, there's this, there's this graphic. There's this graphic. It's a wheel, five-minute segments times 12, with verses teaching you and directing you how to pray. And it goes by so fast. We did it last Wednesday night together in the, in the morning prayer. It went by so fast. So download that little image. I don't know if, oh, there it is, it's here. So download that. It's, it looks chaotic on the screen. It looks better on your phone when you're in your closet praying, okay? So this is a very practical call. Become a people who take on God's declaration over your beloved and then respond in prayer. Can we all stand together?